0: Who?
1: What's up, all you time-card-punching, number-crunching, working folks out there? You're listening to Polygonometry. This podcast features members of my family, but the catch is that we all grew up in or have some sort of affiliation to polygamy. Do you like that intro music? I do. I'm a big fan, and I'm pretty excited that the guest on the show this week took time out of his schedule to write that music not only for me, but also for the listeners, and as you'll soon find out in a few minutes... It's who he is. The man behind the music himself joins me on Zoom, and we talk about tons of different stuff today. We chat about the similarities between polygamy and an Aryan daycare. Uh, We talk about a new Book of Mormon movie starring Nicolas Cage, uh, why parts of the Book of Mormon are written in French for some reason, uh, white salamanders, and what the curse of being good at writing country music actually entails. It's an absolutely inspiring episode, and I hope you dig the conversation that I have with my mom's mom's oldest brother's oldest son. I'm so curious how people write music, because I'm a musical dunce. Like, I have the musicality of a potato and i don't know how that whole process works because when you sent me everything i was like listening to all these different parts of the of the song like the bassline backup vocals all this stuff and you know trying to pick that out with my own ears and listening to all of it i was like how how does that come together in that way
2: yeah well i, I just it's um you know when you have a lot of experience with something it makes it look easy to people who who are watching you who don't know all the work that's gone in the, the 20 years of work that's gone into, to get you to that point. Sure. Basically when, when I start writing something, it just, you kind of try and fu- get into this state of play where you're kind of like a three-year-old playing with blocks and you don't really care how it comes out. You're just having fun playing with it and putting parts together. Cause if you get too caught up in the, in the cerebral part of it, right out of the gate, you, you, you can never go anywhere creative. Sure. You just have to get it. You just have to jump in and start throwing clay down and molding it, pushing it around. And until you find an idea that's, that is interesting to you. And then you kind of follow that. And so like with, with your song, you know, I just, I put a drum beat down and, and uh, just started, pushing notes around putting guitar parts in there and just pushing them around and, and i finally came up with the kind of ska beat that yeah it ended up being and then and then once you have a direction then then you can kind of start being a little bit more thoughtful about it um, okay I, I i like i i've written a bunch of theme songs or jingles for various things and i like doing them a lot because you get a chance to rhyme words that you don't normally get to rhyme when you're writing rock music. Sure. Like, you know, like when, you're, <laughs> when you're writing rock music, you know you're going to rhyme fire with desire. Yeah. You know? That's when it comes around. But, you know, how often do you get to uh, write a song where you get to rhyme something with polygonometry?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes exactly. sense. That was, I mean, I was so surprised that you even did it. Like, I didn't even... Like when you sent me that first rendition of lyrics and and that first cut, like I was like, how did that was, that's just beautiful. Just like kiss the fingers raise to the sky. It was just so beautiful.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's, it's the the one uh, suggestion you did have was, can we change the first verse, which was actually a great suggestion. Um, The original verse had, uh, I think it was like, Mom and Dad and Mom make three polygonometry or something. And oh like, yeah. yeah but I, I just have the one mom. How about if we do this and and it actually ended up being a lot better? Which is another thing when you're writing songs is you have to emotionally divorce yourself from your creation because if you get too emotionally invested in it, then somebody tries to offer a suggestion and you get defensive.
1: Yeah, I think so. I I read some that something like that somewhere. Where was it? Oh, it was um, Stephen King's book, uh, On Writing. Um, I think the phrase that he uses is uh, kill your darlings. Yes. Um, Just talking about that same concept where you kind of have like a really awesome way to describe, I I guess in his line of work, it would be, you know, describing a certain scene or a feeling or emotion or whatever. And then the editor comes in and is like, hey, yeah, I don't know how ducks mean with kazooing and like that kind of thing. So, you know, get them off the pond like it's not going to work. And you kind of have to be like, oh no, but that was beautiful. That was exactly what I wanted, and it just doesn't line up with the rest of it. That outside opinion is is really kind of important. Yeah, I'm not saying my all. outside opinion is important, <laughs> <laughs> um, but
2: no, that's the way all creative stuff is. There, I, one quote that I like from Ernest Hemingway is, "Write drunk, edit sober."
1: Oh yeah, Which, I think I've heard that too. Yeah, yeah. that's Which awesome. Is
2: kind of the same thing I was saying, where you get into a state of play at first. But then as your idea takes shape, then, you can, then your knowledge, your experience in that medium can kind of manifest, manifest itself and you get to start making smart choices. But all along the way, you have to, you have to um, not fall in love with your child. Yeah. Because <laughs> at any time, could, the heart of it can be edited out for one reason or another and you have to let it go.
1: And that I'm assuming that also is like, you know, the same exact thing for the music stuff, not just the lyricism Um, with like certain melodies and like that kind of thing. Is that something that happens when you're writing music?
2: Oh, yeah. All the time. Like, uh, I don't know, you'll you'll be writing a song and you'll realize that the second verse goes on way too long. You need to get around to the chorus faster. Sure. So so you've got these crazy great lyrics or you've got this cool g- guitar part or whatever in the second verse and it's it's got to go. Yeah. Because because it just doesn't serve the overall song. Um you know, it's just just the way it goes.
1: Yeah, so I'm very curious too like cuz you've you've produced like a lot of different genres yourself. Like I've seen, I mean just from knowing you and like seeing your own discography. Um, going from some place south of here to um, cowboy on, I think is what it was, right? Um, yeah. and, and stuff in between and, and past that and stuff as well. But just seeing like how talented you were on you know one specific sound and then you produced like a little bit more of the country stuff and then you had a little bit more of the rock edge to it. Um, I'm curious, like was that you just kind of again going in that place space creatively?
2: No, I'll, I'll tell you what that was. Honestly, is I I started down my musical journey when I was 14 years old, and I had heard Van Halen one, and immediately oh, yeah. I wanted to play guitar for the rest of my life and be a rock star. That's so, that's so cool. And uh, of course, at that time I was a member of the church, mm-hmm. and and by the time I was married and had kids, you know I did the high the whole high school band thing. Okay. Then I got married, had kids, was still a member of the church, trying to find a place for my music to fit. And my music wouldn't fit with the church. And I was so desperate to be heard for my music to be heard. I I was willing to do anything. And that's when I did this someplace South of here is like, maybe if I do this kind of music, and there'll be a place for my music in in the church or whatever or you know it's not church music but it's not something that church people are going to look down their nose at
1: yeah it's not you know? church it's not the church's music but it's also not church music
2: right exactly okay so i so i tried that and of course it's it's wasn't genuine to who i am and so then from there i decided to try the country thing which is is I, I tried to do that for two reasons. One, because I, I have a knack for writing country songs for whatever reason. I don't know why I was cursed with that, but I was. <laughs> do you
1: view that as a curse? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> but
2: but I, I, can write a, I can write a country tune. And you can also make money, or you could at one time, as an independent songwriter in the country world, because a lot of country artists use outside songwriters. So... For that reason, and for the reason that it would be more accepted by my church uh, circle, I went into country songwriting and I really I really put a lot of effort into that for you know, probably ten years. wrote lots of songs, went back and forth to Nashville, mailed uh, demo tapes everywhere, and I ended up getting some cuts and making a little bit of money. Um, but again, not really true to who I was. Or who I you know what what my what I really wanted to get out and then and then when I was um, probably well about the time my kids got to be older kids 16 17 18 and they didn't need me around every second of the day anymore sure and by that point that that ache that I had to for people to hear my music it had gotten bad like I don't know if you've ever felt this way as a creative person where you just literally ache to share your your create- creativity with people and, and that's so interesting
1: honest- to me and it's not yeah. yeah i'm I'm not saying that this is a completely foreign concept to me. I've felt similar twinges i I' the way that you're describing it, I don't think I've felt that way exactly, but definitely like as far as the scale is concerned on one or a spectrum is concerned, I've definitely like felt more towards that before as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the reason why this podcast is the thing in a, in a weird self-serving way, to be honest, like, you know, I needed to kind of like express myself a little bit and comedy clubs Mm -hmm. are shut down. I'm not claiming to be a comedic genius, not at all, but it's just something that I felt like I needed to do, you know, come hell or high water. There you go. Is that one of your song titles? Did I get it? it Yes. Awesome. (laughs) And you also touched yeah, I, on something, too, and, um, where it sounded like you, your journey in music was almost completely influenced by how you felt about the church as well, right? Yeah. Or in a I, weird way?
2: In a weird way. It was, it was me. I, I had this, honestly, my whole life I've lived in this weird place where I'm too straight- for my rock and roll friends and I'm too rock and roll for my straight friends. I I mean, I shouldn't say straight. That sounds gay. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) A straight laced maybe. Yes. I'm too clean living for my rock and roll friends and too rock and roll for my clean living friends. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I, and I've I've, um, sort of occupied that space my whole life. And that is kind of what defined me Defined my music in those early years, and then, like I was saying, by the time my kids got older, and I, I was just feeling that inside, and, and I finally said, I don't care. And that was about the time that we left the church. Oh, okay. And it, was, and it was that same time that I said, I don't care what. I'm getting in a band. I'm I'm already an old per. You know, I'm already forty. Sure. And I, but I don't care. I'm getting in a band. I want to be in a working band and see how far I can go. And I wasn't even in it for the money. I, I was in it for the adventure of it. I, I, I want to find myself doing things I would never have imagined in a million years that I would do. I don't care what anybody in the church thinks of me again. I don't care any of that. I'm going to, I'm going to be true to who I am musically. And, you know, of course, in the way I live my life every day um, as well. And, And that's when I really got active and I started doing the rock heavy, hard rock thing. Yeah. And, and that was 12 years ago. And it was the, I mean, quite honestly, leaving the church and making that decision that I should have had the courage to make 20 years previous. That was the best decision I ever made. The last 12 years have been so awesome.
1: That's so freaking cool, dude. Like, I'm just like listening to you describe like how much that means to you. Like it's palpable. Like I can feel it, and that's so inspiring for anybody who's has any sort of endeavor, whether it's you know creatively or you know if you're an entrepreneur or anything like that. Like that kind of stuff. Like those are the kind of stories that like keep people chugging along. You know?
2: Yeah.
1: Like if this guy can do it and everything, like and he's done all these other things. He's had as published songs and made money, living like he. I mean. Fraser and I talked about how, like, trying to name a cooler job than what you do right now is difficult. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like building guitars and playing in a band that is so sick.
2: (laughs) You know, you know what? I had a, I had a, a moment three or four years ago when I had to, when I had this realization that when people ask me what I do for a living now, I can just say guitar player. Yeah. Stop.
1: That's so start, cool.
2: That's, that's what I am. And that's what I do. Like, like there's no qualifiers. I don't have to say, well, I play in a band on the weekend, but then, you know, um, during the weekdays, I'm an, uh, you know, a night stalker at target. Not, not that there's anything wrong with being a night stalker at target. Sure. But, um, but for me, that would be, that would be a tough job to have, but I don't have to say that now I can just say, I'm a guitar player and
1: that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. Uh, no, I, I appreciate what you said about the night shift target stalkers, cause they're, I mean, I've, I've worked similar positions to that before. And I think the reason why you said what you did is like, at least what, what I thought of when you said it is like, you want people to know what you like to do first. And Mm -hmm. if that somehow, whether it's your own perception or whatever is not good enough, then you say, but this is how I make my money. I stock, you know, at target at nighttime. Right. Um, and I think that's just like an indicator of like how badly people want to be heard, whether it's musically creatively in whatever.
2: Right. It's so interesting. That whole turning point. I often think, man, I wish I had had the courage to make that choice 20 years previously, because as as much progress personally and professionally as i've made in the last 12 years if i could have had the 20 years before that as well you know i who who knows wh- where i would be right now you know yeah I, it, but it's you know you can't you can't worry about that you can't regret that it's just the path my life took but sure but um you know it's definitely made me try and uh, impress upon my kids that they don't have to make me happy they need to go live their lives right now and and make the choices that will make them happy not make me happy
1: yeah you don't want to be what the church was to you when you were going right. through that
2: yeah. yeah
1: that makes sense that's so powerful of a concept to me like that you know this religious organization has such a crazy level of control over how you feel about yourself to the point where it takes you 20 years to finally be in this spot where you're like, this is who I am. This is what I love to do. Like, that's a crazy concept for me to like wrap my head around is that it just like this idea, this church could be or that strong on your, on your life.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's full of good people trying to, trying to live, a, you know, the way they feel is right. Yeah. It's just that when you step away from it, you start to realize that they're just, you know, I mean, I have a lot of family members that are still uh, members and faithful members. And, and as much as they look at me and go, I wish, I wish he would come back to the church I look at them. And I say, I wish you could just not see through those glasses for a little while. and yeah. And realize that life is not the way that you've been told it has to be for the, for your whole life. There's, yeah, there's another way to look at it. You don't need the church for a moral compass. You can have your own moral compass. You don't need a church to be a good person. Sure. There's another way to do that. There are many other ways to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really, and it's tough. And you're so right. Like it's not like anybody who adheres to those beliefs is some sort of maniac you know, and like that kind of thing. And that's part of the reason why I wanted this podcast to kind of get up, you know, off the ground a little bit is to show that there's a lot of people in my life who have lived and believed a lot of really interesting things. We can call it that. Um, mm-hmm. But yet they still pay their bills. They pay their taxes. They love their kids. They want the best for their family. You know, they... They parent well, you know, they, they try or just, they're just, yeah, honestly living their lives in the way that, you know, whatever iteration that takes and to kind of like pull the curtain back a little bit. And to be honest, like sometimes when you pull the curtain back, you find things you don't want to see. And, you know, that's kind of just what happens. But as long as the knowledge is there, like the information is there. And I mean, if that happens on my podcast, it's great. If I end up just talking about whatever the hell, then that's what happens too, but you know, that's kind of what some of the underlying intentions are, at least.
2: You know, it's funny that you should say that because since I you know, the church has such a stranglehold on you because it really is it's not just your church, but it's your whole social circle. And when you leave that, you you're gonna you're gonna feel hugely alone. And fortunately for us. I was able to leave that and find another circle of people in the music community in the in the musician community here in the northwest and i have to say i I remember when i first made that move i was so nervous to go in a bar yeah because there were (laughs) there were bar people in there were tavern people in there drinking alcoholic beverages
1: oh dear god i mean dear gosh dear gosh
2: (laughs) and it was it was very it was very hard and 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 once I got over that, this group of people that I, I I learned that people outside the church are also awesome people. People with tattoos are also awesome people. People who drink alcoholic beverages are also awesome.
1: You're going to start to have to pump the brakes a little bit more. I don't know. (laughs) We might get a little too risque with what you're saying here.
2: (laughs) But but honestly, I, I found, I have found that the people outside the church really do, in a lot of ways, a better job at living gospel principles than the people I knew at church. I find them way more charitable. I find them way more accepting of people with different viewpoints than they have. And uh, they they are way more generous. I, I think when you're in the church, you have that organization, that underlying organization, that kind of takes care of those things for you. And so you don't develop those traits in yourself as strongly as when you are your own moral compass um, without a church. And the, I, I just, the people who are in my social circle now, I find them, this is awful to say, but I find them kind of on the, on the level as a better quality of people. Okay. <laughs> They're, they have more, they have more um, Christ-like attributes, so to speak, than a lot of the people I went to church with. And, um, and you know, when you're in, in testimony meeting, I heard this a million times in testimony meeting. Somebody would come up and say, yeah, so the, the missionaries found this person, this investigator. Eventually they baptized them. And when they became a member of the church, their family disowned them and their family is awful for doing that to them. But I found that when I left the church, the opposite was exactly true, that all the people who I thought were friends at church, sure. I thought that you know, we could still hang out with or whatever, they, they only wanted to be your friend as long as you were a member of the church. And as soon as you weren't anymore, they didn't have as much interest in you. Sure. Or the only interest they had in you was they wanted to get you back so that they had a better yeah. sense of their values being upheld.
1: And it, what's no. so funny to me is that those folks who like feign this sense of care towards your situation just because they want you to come back to the fold, it's it's crazy to me how obvious it is. But to them, it seems like they're just kind of like scooting around it and trying to like manipulate in a way you to kind of come back. And yeah. I know that was something that happened a ton to my parents after they kind of, you know they ruin their lives by taking off their garments. <laughs> and uh, yeah, same exact kind of thing, the people who just like totally drop you, like, you know what, you know, go jump off a cliff, see you later, you don't mean nothing to us anymore because you're not a part of this faith. And then the others who are like, no, they're, they're fine, we, they just need some time, they'll come back, they'll be back, don't worry about it. And also what's great about the caveat of Mormonism is that that uh, don't worry they'll be back is eternal because of work for the dead. They can just be like, hey, yeah, no, don't worry about their soul. After they die, we can make sure they get rounded up.
2: They're they're either coming back or we're bringing them back. (laughs) One way or another, they're
1: coming
2: back. Yeah. No, I hate it when, you know, Kathy and I are out somewhere and we'll run into somebody uh, from the war that we were in. And they'll say, you know, it's been been five years. And they'll say, oh, we miss you so much. And we're just like, really? Because... We still live in the same house. Yep. You know, you were over there a million times and I haven't seen you in five years. I still have the same phone number, by the way. I haven't heard from you. So you don't miss me that much.
1: Yeah. Have you ever said that to someone?
2: I, no, (laughs) No. I've said it to my wife a million times, but I've never said it to the actual person before. And I probably, I probably never will. I'm a lover, not a fighter.
1: Okay. Yeah. Avoiding (laughs) confrontation is is kind of a good thing as long as it's not interfering with your overall quality of life, um, I would say. But yeah, I haven't had to have that hardcore of a conversation. It kind of just seemed as though that was just, we both knew. Kind of thing, like I kind of acted, from what I remember, just kind of acted in a way that like let them know, like, hey, I know you don't care, like let's not do this anymore, yeah. like let's just move on. You go your way, I go mine, hunky dory, no big deal.
2: You know, you know, the one thing that Kathy and I have gotten really good at is shutting the missionaries down when they're on our doorstep. Oh, <laughs> we could we can shut them down so fast. Okay,
1: so now yeah. I'm really curious, what sort of <laughs> this might be, this might be the section of the podcast where the people who are like mentally out but personally in, kind mm-hmm. of are like, okay, yeah, I want to see what you do to kind of like get us off your back, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing, um, just to see. That's like one of those things that I'm morbidly curious about. What are some of the what are the some of the tools that you have in your utility belt to shoe <laughs> off the nineteen <laughs> year olds on your doorstep?
2: A hairspray and a lighter. Every time. <laughs> now just just being like perfectly frank you know i mean these are these are kids who are younger than my kids at this point out bright-eyed and bushy-tailed trying to serve the lord the way they think is right so you can't you don't want to just squash them you don't want to you know sure personally destroy them but you just you just you're just totally frank, like, hey, I appreciate you guys are here, but I have no interest. Well, is there anything we can do? No, there's nothing you can do. I'm I'm great. Uh, well, can we schedule a t- time to come back? Or nope, don't want you back. You know, you just you just be totally frank and you don't give them any avenue. Yeah, but, yeah,
1: and they and they're good at finding one. From what oh, yeah. I from what I know, I mean that's kind of the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to kind of find yeah, a whatever of times, works.
2: A, a lot of times, when they see that the gate is closed in that way, they try and chat you up. You know, find the hey, I see you, uh, see you're out there gardening. How's the how's the you know? How, how are your are petunias? The, uh, <laughs> yeah, how are the cucumbers doing this year, uh, <laughs> guys? I'm not interested. yeah Yeah, you just you don't you don't engage when they try and chat you up you just don't engage you just say i'm not interested
1: there's been a few people who have described what they do um and it's it's in of the similar vein as far as uh being perfectly frank as far as the grace and dignity at which it's executed (laughs) maybe not be matching Uh, (laughs) a friend of mine in college uh, he grew up staunch atheist and he lived in an area where there was... I think he was from Idaho. Um, no, no, Idaho. Somewhere. Washington, maybe. Uh, or Minnesota. Um, but he... He, <laughs> he decided to start to study up on Mormonism. And he specifically started talking about the Kinderhook plates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, these weird, interesting things that are, you know, these discrepancies in the gospel and, like, that kind of thing. And uh, he basically like fought their fire with his own fire and kind of took almost a Richard Dawkins approach of just kind of berating them for believing in something. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's like the nicest way to go about it, but I mean, it's, he told me it was effective at least. So if that's what the marker is, then I should, you know, okay.
2: (laughs) The thing is, the thing is about that. And, and of course I'm speaking from a place of ignorance here because I never served a mission. Sure. That was that was kind of my first step away from the church is I didn't serve in a mission and that well you don't serve a mission that kind of relegates you to second class Mormonhood. Oof. which was which was a stigma I lived with for those twenty years. But um uh, oh, crap, I forgot where I was going with this. Oh yeah. Debating debating people on on concepts of the gospel that aren't talked about in gospel doctrine that a lot of people may not even know about. Mm. Um, I, I think missionaries are going to be more aware of that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a pretty good percentage of the Mormon population that doesn't know about the kinderhook plates or the white salamander letters or yeah, y- any of that kind of you know, mountain meadows massacre. They, they're not aware of that stuff. Yeah. So,
1: uh, and what's, what's funny is that there's probably a lot of people who are like, wait a second, kinderhook, salamander, why is there, ma- why are they massacring <laughs> salamanders with these hooks? Like this doesn't make yeah, any sense. I don't understand. <laughs> so do, can you, do you want to give like a quick rundown of those quick things? I mean, if yeah. you want, it's up to you. If, if you want to just move on, then we can move on. But no,
2: I can, I can throw it, throw it out real quick. The kinderhook plates were some bell shaped plates that were presented to Joseph Smith He immediately pronounced them uh, a a new set of plates and that a wondrous translation was underway. I think it was even published in the Deseret News that a new and wondrous translation was underway and soon there would be further word from the Lord. And and ultimately they were proven to be a hoax. Um, The Mountain Meadows Massacre was uh, after the early saints had moved to Salt Lake and the Salt Lake Valley. Um, they massacred a another group of uh, pioneers who were on their way to California. They were trying to get to California or something. I don't remember. I think I that's, I think that's details, what it was. But they, but they were passing through Utah territory. And, uh, and because of political tension and some deep-seated distrust that the Mormons had to outsiders. Uh, They ended up um, massacring this group of people. Basically, they they surrounded them, uh, told them to surrender. If they would surrender, they would come to no harm. The pioneers surrendered immediately upon which the, the Mormons shot all the men and uh, a lot of the women too. I think. I think that most of the survivors were just children, oh my God. and and this and the Mormons took those children and started raising them as their own. Um, and of course, the the real the the real conundrum in the whole thing is: was that was the order to do that given by Brigham Young, or was it some rogue bishops asking uh, acting on their own?
1: Yeah, that was like the weird thing that people were kind of debating on, wasn't it?
2: And still are. Yeah. You know? and do you think I, that's I like? I've,
1: do you think that's because they're they're kind of wanting to you know protect the name of, of Brother Brigham?
2: Um. Maybe. I, have you ever read Under the Banner of Heaven by?
1: Oh, that's the Crack hour book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I have.
2: And, and the question he poses in that book is brilliant. And by the way, that's an awesome book. Uh, and he's he's a great writer, a great researcher. Yeah. And. And a lot of people, a lot of members of the church think that that's a real anti-Mormon book. I thought he gave the church a totally fair shake in that book. I
1: agree. Yeah, because it was was like there was so much. I mean, basically, if you haven't read the book, those of you who are listening, um, it's a book by John Krakauer. He also wrote Missoula. Um, That's another book that he wrote about like the – uptick in in rape cases on the u of m campus he also wrote he also in,
2: wrote into thin air yeah. about the doomed uh, mount everest expedition
1: yeah so he's you know nonfiction writer and kind of he's just a investigative journalist to be frank and he does an entire expose or an entire book obviously of um specifically the folks down in um southern utah northern arizona and if you want to see my last name all over a book, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, and he talked about how uh, he talked. Didn't he talk a little bit about the um, Elizabeth Smart case as well?
2: I think that happened after the book was written. The The main book, and I don't remember, it's been a long time since I read it. I don't remember the names. Uh, but there were a couple of brothers who believed they had received revelation to Restart the church or something, and they ended up murdering some kids. Oh, uh, old blood! And 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 the the theme of the whole book, or the the question that the book asks, is in a church where everyone is told that they are entitled to receive their own personal revelation. How do you keep people from going rogue? you know if yeah. if you if you have a prophet that's receiving revelation for the church and a bishop for the ward and a father for the family but you know every and each individual is also entitled to their own personal revelation how do you contain that how do you control that and and these two brothers were convinced that they had received personal revelation that told them to kill some kids and and uh start a new church or something which sounds completely crazy until you get you know a couple chapters into first Nephi and uh <laughs> and it doesn't sound so crazy to a Mormon that you could be commanded to kill somebody um so yeah. that an entire nation doesn't dwindle in unbelief.
1: Yeah. Shout out to Laban. Um but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, and I, I I read the book. I was also on the side of the fence because I was like, I was kind of on my way out of the church when that book came out, um, and at that time, I think I was like at a weird sense of my denial about my whole experience, to where I didn't want to read the book for the same reasons of like it being anti-Mormon and like that kind of thing, um, and then a friend of mine. Uh, was like, dude, your last name's all over this book. <laughs> like, what's going on? Are you related to these people? And I'm like, ah, yes. <laughs> um, and then he's like, dude, have you read it? And I was like, no, I haven't. And he said, yeah, you should you should read it, man. Um, and he rec- recommended it to me. It's weird to have a friend recommend a book to you that's like full of your relatives. You know, <laughs> like you would think that that would be something that I would all know about and everything else too. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I was very impressed and... And I I found it to be really interesting. One of those things where it's like, I didn't know those details about my family. Oh, mm-hmm. she started her house on fire because she essentially hated her husband? That's crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I avoided it for a long time because it was labeled, you know, anti-Mormon. And I thought I was going to crack it open and find all these horrible untruths about Mormonism. And I... I think it was exactly the opposite of that. Like he, he basically just stated a lot of Mormon beliefs as fact. He was just pretty much, it came across as like, okay, this is what you believe. And so I'll, I'll grant you that. And here's this other thing you believe. And I'll, I'll grant you that. He, he, he just, he didn't, um, like I said before, he, I just felt like he gave Mormonism a really fair shake. Have you read
1: the CES
2: letter? No, I don't even
1: know what that is. Oh, you'd get a kick out of it, I think. Okay. Um, and I don't know how displaced you are in regards to closing that chapter of your life completely. Um, but the CES letter, the CES standing for the church education uh, Education system, um, basically Sunday school. Um, and this guy uh, who had served his mission and all this stuff, he... Uh, basically wrote this letter to the head of the church education system in Salt Lake and basically like wrote a ton of questions that are just worded so perfectly. It's like I was speaking on another episode about it, but like um, I was talking about how like I haven't resonated so hard with the piece of, piece of liter- literature in my entire life. It basically like this guy asked all the questions that I had had going through mm-hmm. that time but just didn't have the the words for or anything like that um i highly 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 recommend it um and i'll uh, write it down i'll tell you the author down, give me one second I'll, I'll google it really quick um it's stupid that my i don't remember his name right now but oh uh, jeremy Runnels. yeah so it basically just outlines um a ton of his just issues about it. He's a seventh generation member of the LDS church. He has pioneer ancestry. He graduated from BYU. Like this guy is as blue blood as you can get. And he basically like got to the point where, I mean, there's a mass exodus of the church because of, he just published it and it's free to download on the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's where I saw it. It came out in like 2014 or something like that. Um, I highly recommend looking at it.
2: Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, I was listening to, I, I will I will tell you that your podcast, I listen to podcasts all the time. I'm a podcast junkie because I have a 45 minute commute each way. Um, your podcast inspired me to seek out other Mormon centric podcasts. Oh, really? Not that I, not that I care really to... I'm pretty well versed in Mormonism, having, you know, lived, lived it for forever, 40 years, 40 years of my life. Yeah. But I just wanted to see what was out there. I was just curious. And one of them I listened to the guy said that he knew. And this is all hearsay. But he said that he knew that the church was seeking advice from um, uh, public sort what's, what's of uh, public relations firms. Because as more evidence presents itself and science is kind of coming to a place where we can show that you know, uh, Native Americans didn't come from Israel, but rather more likely came across the, you know, the Bering Land Bridge and, mm-hmm. and this kind of thing, that the church is looking for a way to pivot away from the Book of Mormon being a literal history to more of an allegory. Uh, in the same way that a lot of the stories in the Old Testament are thought of, you know, the, the Noah and the Ark. and So that kind of it
1: sounds like the literalism of the Book of Mormon um, is being stripped away and the church is panicking because they want to save face. That's what right. it sounds so they're
2: like. Looking, exactly. They're looking for a way to pivot. And whether that's true or not, I don't know. Okay. But the part that's interesting to me is that I was talking with a family member whom I love very much and they're still faithful Mormons. And we have very good relationship, and we can talk about these things without wounding each other's feelings. Sure. And I told them what I just told you, and I said, if that's the case, and, and the Mormon church did seek to pivot away from the Book of Mormon being literal history to being an allegory, what would you do? Would that shake your faith? Would you... How how would you feel about that? And it wasn't that surprising to me that they said we wouldn't care if the if the prophet said this was what it was, then then we would be fine with that
1: and just roll with it.
2: And just roll with it,
1: not and because like, it completely goes against everything the Mormon <laughs> Church has been talking about since the eighteen hundreds. Not because it has the majority of its entire existence been like trying to put forth this idea that it's literal history. I know. And, wow. And only, That's um. Yeah, some... Not
2: only that, but like trying to draw these connections, like, like uh, if you go to Chichen Itza, you can see this rock formation that is clearly a baptismal font, and you can see all these signs in the in the uh, this ancient these pyramids that clearly point to you know when uh jesus was among them and quetzalcoatl their god was almost certainly jesus during that time that he visited you know all these like direct archaeological ties that they've tried to draw yeah just gone and and all of a sudden instead it's just like it's just a story that teaches us an important lesson it's just like
1: that's such that's yeah (laughs) no that doesn't that doesn't make sense and that can't. It's like saying today is Friday or today is Saturday. Yeah. Where we're geographically located. Like <laughs> that's like screaming at the sky and telling everyone like why are you screaming? It's cuz it's red. It's like that's patently <laughs> false. It's not a yeah. thing. That's such a weird I, I mean that is like gold medal level mental gymnastics to I, I know. to jump to that.
2: I know and it it just it, if, if that's, that's real like- if that
1: is actually happening with the church and everything else, let's have that caveat in there. Let's not assume that it's actually happening too yes. hard.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I heard it on a podcast. Okay. So I don't know how much more evidence you need than that.
1: Well, according to some of the criticisms I've gotten of the podcast, that means it's the actual truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: it's, it's it, I, I don't know. I, I have seen the church backpedal from a lot of stuff in my
1: Black people. Three, anyway, sorry, I had something in my throat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that and and many other things. I mean, if you if you look at how far the church has backpedaled from many things, and it's in its whatever it is two hundred and whatever year history, is it two hundred years yet?
1: It should 60, be about two hundred now, right?
2: Yeah. And uh, you compare the way it was at first to the way it is now. There's been plenty of plenty of change in. In in a in a church that is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever.
1: Yeah. Supposedly. Wow. That's nuts. That, that, yeah. I mean, if that's the case, that's such a weird, yet not surprising turn. I feel like.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you think about it, though, all the ways the Book of Mormon is, has already been. Uh, changed or corrected since its first perfect translation. By when I say perfect, uh, I'm making air quotes. Yes. But but then you look at all the all the things that have been changed. You know, how, if it, if, it, if it was a perfect inspired translation, what is there to change? Well, apparently there's plenty, and apparently yeah. there's, you know, possibly still plenty more.
0: Yeah. Wow.
1: I hope people arrive at the truth, whatever it is. I mean because I could be wrong you know i I could be wrong about about God not existing that's just my own personal belief, but that's fine I could be wrong about it I mean I'm not hundred percent on anything usually
2: I kind of at this point in my life don't believe God exists either i I wish he did I hope he does I don't know if that's a germ of faith or not it might be I think it would be I think it would be awesome if he did because I would love to be with my family forever but the, the the, part that always trips me up is my experience as a parent and if I had oh, interesting if I had a, a, a lesson that I wanted to teach my children I'm going to send you out into the wilderness and I want you to return to me because I love you very much I would not erase all memory of me and throw them in a place where they would never even maybe hear of me. And, and uh, I would never confuse them with uh, people trying to sell them 27 false versions of me. Yeah what fighting chance would they ever have to learn that lesson in that case? It, sure, it just, yeah. It, 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 so if we have a Heavenly Father that wants us to return to Him, how come most of the people who have ever lived on this planet ne- have never even heard of Him? That's kind never of a, even heard of Him in their lifetimes. Kind of
1: a big question.
2: <laughs> yeah. And and so it, it's... And not only have... Ne- some have never heard of Him. Those who have got, you know, 27 or... 127 different versions of him. That's where the logic falls short for me. It just, it doesn't ring true that a loving parent that wants us to return to him chose this way to do it.
1: Sure. Just doing the math on it. Maybe that's what makes math evil. I don't know. Like the the moment you start to do math, the more you understand and the more you don't like it. Maybe that's why (laughs) we, maybe that's why people don't like math. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about what, so you were talking about how, like, the polygamy part of, of your life as association with, with me and my family and, like, that kind of thing was kind of absent for a while, I'm assuming, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. of my grandfather's decision to leave and his whole story, which will more than likely be posted very soon. Um, <laughs> and so I'm curious, like, what it was like for you when you started to reassociate with the folks who have gone and left and have you know, you know what was it like for you seeing a polygamous family interact for the first time?
2: You know, of course, when they left, I heard from all the all your grandfathers, uh, I should say all your grandmother's brothers and sisters. Oh, about yes. How, about how they had done this awful thing. They were you know, they were lost. They had lost their way, blah blah blah. And of course, that's what I expected to find. It went way too long. This is another stretch of time where I wish I had made the right decision 10 years prior, but I basically lost touch with, with all my cousins, all your aunts and uncles Mm -hmm. and your mom and lost touch for probably a decade. Uh, My family became estranged from the, from the family at large about the same time because of some stuff my dad did that landed him in prison and, and made us estranged from the family. So we were kind of off on our own and your mom and her um, siblings were off on their own and we just lost touch. Sure. And finally it was your mom that reached out to me just because your mom is awesome and does that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. She's the greatest. And,
2: And she reached out to me and said, what are we doing? You know, we're cousins. Why, 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 why are we, drifted so far apart oh you know what actually I should back up okay before she reached out to me I did have one occasion where I went out to dinner with your uncle yeah and that was that was truly my first glimpse at polygamy and of course
1: like polygamy in action
2: for, you like seeing it for
1: yourself you always hear about it the all yeah the williams family has lost their way but now seeing yeah. how lost their way is
2: <laughs> yeah well see honestly it was probably the worst the worst way to be introduced because i kind of went from zero to a hundred in about <laughs> one second
1: <laughs> you because you went to dinner like, with them <laughs>
2: yeah well i it's like i couldn't start out with the one with two wives or i couldn't start out with three wives I started out with the guy that had five wives. Yeah. So it was like it was like you know trying to light a birthday candle with a blowtorch. And (laughs)
1: And you were the candle. Yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) And uh, I I will never forget seeing them pull up in a a couple of big vans. Big.
1: (laughs) The fifteen passenger vans.
2: Yeah, fifteen passenger vans. They roll up in those things you got a billion blonde children piling out of those cars like clowns out of a Volkswagen and they just kept coming and Kathy and I were just going like holy crap there's like all these children they're all blonde and blue-eyed and between the ages of 8 and 13 and it looked like an Aryan daycare <laughs> that's that's the
1: now uh, the volkswagen reference is a little bit funnier now yeah that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's right
2: i'd like to say i had that plan <laughs> um yeah and you know of, of course and then we went out to dinner we went out to a mongolian grill was it who hot no it oh, was dang it. uh it was chang's mongolian grill.
1: oh chang's okay i'm familiar yeah. with the name Okay. And
2: all the older kids, all the kids that were old enough to be left alone were, stayed at home. And it was just uh, me and, and his five wives and each wife had an infant that was too young to leave. Oh, sure. And my first real, my, my first observation of how it like real, really works in society came when one of the waitresses came by. And of course you see five women with five babies all lined up and it's noteworthy. Yeah. And she said and she said, "Oh my gosh, what are all you all you are you a part of a book club or what's going on here?" and without missing a beat, they said, "Oh, we're we're all cousins."
1: Oh man, they've practiced that so yeah. many times.
2: And it's also true,
1: kind of. Well,
2: that's <laughs> Kathy and I kind of looked at each other out of the corner of our eyes and I said, and and after the night was over and Kathy and I were alone, I said, they've rehearsed that.
1: Oh, 100%. That
2: was was too quick and too committed to it. Synchronized. Yeah, for that not to have been rehearsed, which… I, I get.
1: I see know, the necessity gotta, for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like that would yeah. be such a drag to have to explain something that you're supposed to not be really doing because it's technically illegal, but you still right. want to go to Chang's. Yeah. <laughs> it's a popping place.
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> gotta have your stir fry.
1: I think everybody knows a Chang's, whether it's yeah. Mongolian, Asian, Japanese, it's a, yeah, whatever it's.
2: That's right. <laughs> so anyway, so then you can kind of take that and kind of encapsulate it. That, that happened kind of in a vacuum and that was our first exposure then fast forward to i don't know a couple years later when kelly reached out to us and we got kind of reintroduced to the families and we got to um see them in in their natural habitat so to speak we went up to rods Uh um, and got to see them and uh and that's when we really got to to experience what it was like to be among a polygamist family. We came away from that going, man, they're a really high functioning family. There's, there's no weirdness going on. I mean, I'm sure they have stuff they deal with like any family. Sure. Absolutely. Maybe maybe stuff they deal with like any family times five, but it's, (laughs) it's still the same stuff. Yeah. And, and, all the kids got along with each other pretty well. The older kids looked after the younger kids. It was eye-opening for us to just see that it wasn't the the crazy, you know, debaucherous cesspool that we had been. <laughs> like, oh, they're not
1: heathens. Yeah.
2: we also There was also a time in there when we stayed with, I, I think you might name, uh, I think you might raindrop, name drop, <laughs> raindrop, name drop this name. Okay, that's fine. But but there was a time in there when we uh, stayed with
1: oh okay his yeah
2: too, and got to meet their family and that was that was another introduction and in fact I, maybe I shouldn't even tell this story but that's a, that's okay
1: of, names are out it's it's all, it's a done deal <laughs> <laughs> all right you can speak freely and I'll do the rest of it
2: <laughs> okay well um, you know before the the family schism. I hung out with all the time. Him and I were good buddies when we were kids. When we okay. were teens, we hung out all the time. We did all kinds of things together. And one of the girls that ended up being one of his wives okay briefly showed interest in me. Oh, before she was part of
1: <laughs> I didn't know this. What? Yeah. Man, yeah. I learned so much about my family. <laughs> By doing this, it's it was, so cool. It okay. was the,
2: it was it was absolutely nothing more than uh, I think it was a note that I got past that said like in your
1: I locker think, or something.
2: Uh, it wasn't in my locker. We didn't go to the same school, but okay. somehow I I ended up in possession of a note that said essentially I think you're neat and I would like to get to know you better. And that was as far as it went. Oh, okay.
1: A great starting point. If there was ever a quality gauge of starting points, I think that's good. It's not like she was, you know, making a a shrine to you in her locker or something like that.
2: (laughs) No, apparently uh, those kind of shrines only exist in Pinesdale. (laughs) Listening to your podcast, I mean,
1: I didn't even think of that, and I'm glad you referenced it again. I completely spaced (laughs) about that specific incident.
2: I mean, I always knew that your dad was, you know, maybe just a little bit more handsome than I was but when I found out (laughs) that he had shrines to him I was like all right clearly he's in a whole different he's on a whole different plane that's not
1: even true in the slightest because you play guitar
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right yeah I challenge you to a guitar duel right now
1: uh yeah so it's it's crazy that so you what I'm hearing basically is like you had like this kind of again, curtain getting drawn back on like what it was like to be a polygamist and it wasn't what you expected. And it turned into something that you were just kind of like, Oh, this is just yet another way to live. It's not like they're sacrificing cats.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm an out very much an outsider of the whole polygamy thing. And I, I like to say, uh, you've heard me say this before. I like to say that if polygamy is the house at the end of the cul-de-sac with ten cars and a thousand kids in the backyard? I'm the next door neighbor who's constantly throwing their frisbees back over the fence sure. and wondering what in the heck they're doing next door. Yeah, and that that's kind of where that's kind of where I have observed it from. But from what I can see, it's it's not what the public at large thinks it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a high-function family with doing all the same things that all other families do, having all the same joys and sorrows that other families have. And, and it's changed my opinion. I just I feel like it's just another way to live. And as long as everybody is consenting and nobody is getting hurt, it, as long as all the children's needs are being met uh, you know, um, physically and emotionally, as long as those kids are being loved, I don't see what, why it's any different than any of the other lifestyles that are out there that seem to be fine with the public at large.
1: Yeah. You think about like children of separated divorced parents and mm-hmm. the the kind of experience they have, you know, like the more people that love you and want the best for you in your life, the better your life is going to be overall. If it mm-hmm. seems like, it seems like that would be the logic. Um, Yeah. But then when, you know, these crazy lifestyles come up where they're living, you know, something a little bit more unorthodox to what you hear about or what you know and are comfortable with. And it's you you claim that they're messing up their kids because they have this interesting thing that's foreign to you. Like that's really it's a hard spot to criticize from.
2: Yeah. Yep. And I mean, it's not something I would ever choose for myself. Um, not in a million years, but if other people choose it and they're, and all those criteria are being met that I just laid out, I don't, I don't see what the big deal is.
1: Yeah. It only becomes when those belief systems actually start to have more serious consequences that it's like, wait a second. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then you kind of have to remove all that stuff away from it and say, if they were just living polygamy as in the, the polygonometry and that was it, then sure, whatever. But unfortunately it's met with all these other, you know, interesting takes on how the world works. Yep. But you know what we didn't talk about Mm
2: -hmm. the
1: the white salamander. That was the third one. I was trying to think of what it was.
2: Oh man, this is, I'm going to need to be fact-checked on this. Okay, I can I can pull up Wikipedia. That that, uh, this happened during the tenure of Spencer W. Kimball. That there was a person who was creating fake documents, purportedly written by Joseph Smith or maybe Emma Smith. Okay. And he was really good at forging these documents. I I remember that he would find books that were correct for the period like a book that was from you know 1830 or whatever sure and he would tear out the leaves he would tear out the leaves on the end of the book you know the the blank pieces of paper that were at the beginning and the end of the book and then he would write on them and then he would use some kind of a vacuum to draw the ink down into the paper so that it was correct in that way as well anyway they were they were masterful forgeries yeah and he was selling them he was either blackmailing or selling them, or maybe both, to the church. The church was fooled. The church thought they were legitimate. And some of these, some of these forged documents had purported accounts of Joseph Smith saying he f- followed a white salamander to where the Book of Mormon was buried or something like that.
1: Okay. So I, um, I just barely Googled it, and I have it here. Are you willing okay. to sit through me reading the white salamander letter?
2: Oh, only only if i'm at least 50% correct in my memory
1: you are you are more than 50% i would say you're okay. actually about like 95 okay. so nice job good memory <laughs> mm-hmm. okay so um this is just on, from Wikipedia. The contents of the letter implied a magical aspect to Smith's life, a controversial subject debated among scholars of Latter-day Saint history. The Salamander letter was supposedly written by Martin Harris to Williams or William Wines Phelps, an early convert to the church. Uh, Harris served for a short period of time as scribe for the translation of the Golden Plates and assisted in the financing of the first printing of the Book of Mormon. Um, a statement by Harris appears in the front of the Book of Mormon stating that he was shown by an angel the Golden Plates, um, Okay, the witnesses and all that stuff. Uh, The letter presented a version of the recovery of the Golden Plates which contrasted to the quote-unquote orthodox version of events as related by Joseph Smith to the Latter-day Saint movement, which would have, if true, confirmed some controversial aspects of Smith's life. Smith had been accused of quote, treasure digging and use of a seer stone. Okay, so here it is. The text of the Salamander letter, Palmyra, October 23rd, 1830. I'm also probably going to be doing a, a a live in the moment. Like, Hey, what does that mean? Hey, that's kind of interesting. Um, just as though I don't lose my place and what I want to ask. Okay. 1830 dear sir, your letter of yesterday is received and I hasten to answer as fully as I can. Joseph Smith jr. First come to my notice in the year 1824 in the summer of that year, I contracted with his father to build a fence on my property in the course, sick of that work, I approach Joseph and ask, How it is in a day and a half you put up what requires your father and two brothers a full day of working together? Okay, this is okay. So, this is obviously something that is, does not have any sort of punctuation. <laughs> so, I'm struggling to figure out where the sentences end. Um, with bro, uh, brothers a full day of working together, he says, I have not been without assistance, but can not say more. Only you better find out the next day. Okay, this is kind of just basically him outlining, uh, like, "Hey, I know of Joseph Smith because uh, I did some work with him." Um, it's getting kind of redundant a little bit here. Um, I latter dreamed I converse with spirits, which let me count their money when I wake, and I have in my hand a dollar coin, which I take for a sign. Joseph describes what I have seen. Okay, as a sign, Joseph describes what I seen in every particular. He said, or says he, the spirits are grieved. So I threw back the dollar in the fall of the year, 1827. So we got rid of it. So we got a dollar that Joseph Smith had that paid him. And then he got rid of it because it had ghosts in it or something.
2: Mm,
1: yeah. Um, I'm trying you don't to want find to onto those dollars. No, definitely not. Uh, that's uh, like some pirates, of the Caribbean level stuff right there. <laughs> I know. You don't want to, you don't want to hang on to those. You'll, you'll live forever. <laughs> you'll live eternal <laughs> life if you have those.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So I'm just trying to fast forward just because the letter is actually kind of long. I want to get to the part where it talks about the white salamander. I just need to make sure I find. Okay. So he threw back the dollar in the fall of the year 1830, or 1827. I hear Joseph found a gold Bible. I take Joseph aside and he says it is true. I found it four years ago with my stone and, but only just got it because of the enchantment the old spirit come to me or because of the enchantment the old spirit come to me 3 times in the same dream and says dig up the gold but when i take it up the next morning the spirit transfigured himself from a white salamander in the bottom of the hole and struck me 3 times and held the treasure and would not let me have it because i lay it down to cover over the hole when the spirit says Do not lay it down, Joseph. So basically like he's saying that uh, he talked to Joseph and Joseph told him the story of how he found the plates and how the spirit transfigured himself into a white salamander and hit him three times as well. Like it's a really interesting way to describe it. Um,
2: power of the salamander compels you
1: (laughs) (laughs) so it's amphibious in nature is what you're saying the church is amphibious in nature and has a tail i guess i don't know but essentially like that's it's just highlighting like martin harris witness to the reveal you know revealing of the golden plates says that joseph had this crazy experience but as you've said before These, this letter that I just barely wrote parts or read parts of, was actually a fake, complete and total fake. But when it came forward in the 1980s, there was everybody was eating it up, hook, line, and sinker.
2: Yes, particularly church leadership who was either buying the documents or paying to not have them publicized or something. And the whole thing culminated with a car bombing. Uh, the guy who was forging the documents was, was killed in a car bombing incident. And the question was who, who did that?
1: Who was the one that set off the car bomb that killed the guy that. That was defrauding the the church. Yeah. Let's see. That's actually such a crazy, it's hard, it's hard for me to like move on from that and just like go to the next thing that we want to talk about because like it involved like a murder. <laughs> like a white salamander went all the way from like this this story of Joseph Smith's magical life to a car bombing. Like that's, that's weird for me to kind of like just gap. Okay, so, so Hoffman, this guy who forged this letter was struggling under massive debt apparently and was falling behind on delivering on deals. Um, and in 1985, uh, he learned the the pedigree of the Salamander letter was under widespread uh, widespread suspicion. He produced and placed a number of bombs. They were detonated with a mercury switch, um, but without a safety switch. So this guy was committed. I think it was like Hoffman was trying. Didn't wasn't it like the car bomb was his own demise? Like he accidentally set it off.
2: I, I honestly don't remember. Okay, let's see I'm, if we can I'm find going it. off. I'm going off. A you know. 40 year old memories
1: here. Okay. So Christensen is this guy who was Hoffman's main target. I'm assuming that Christensen was this guy uh, who was basically like trying to find him out and like disprove him um, or something. And uh, the bomb was intended as a diversion. It was placed. Uh, so one of the bombs that he, the, one of the three bombs, one of them was in Christensen's office and another one was in this lady, uh, Kathleen Sheets' uh, home. Uh, Kathleen Sheets is also wrapped up in this. Um, but they were dec- or, uh, the bomb was intended as a diversion to draw off investigators by causing them to uh, focus on unrelated business dealings, but Hoffman himself was subsequently injured when the third bomb went off prematurely in his car. That bomb exploded in a way that most of the blast did not hit Hoffman. Wow. What is going on?
2: <laughs> so, he, so he was the one that blew himself up.
1: Yeah. How crazy is that? Mm-hmm. The guy would go to such lengths to plant bombs to make sure that he wasn't caught. You don't learn about that in Sunday school.
2: Nope.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's not in the DNC. <laughs> was that ever something that you felt validated and not believing when you were on the way out?
2: validated and not believing
1: like the white salamander stuff and the kinderhook plates and, and, and all that stuff. Was that one of those things where you're like, Oh, I always had doubts, but now I know it's not real. Was that ever something that you experienced?
2: Um, yeah, kind of in a way there's, there's tons of, of things where they just don't pass the the logic test. And anybody you ask gives you a mealy mouthed answer. Like, you know, why is a French word in the Book of Mormon? I forget what book it is, but it ends with the word adieu. Why would that be there? You know, I've
1: never heard that. Now I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm so curious now. I'm so glad I have uh, Google right here.
2: Yeah, I, I don't remember which book it is, but it, it ends. For some reason, the Book of Helaman comes to mind, but I don't know if that's right. The very last word in the book is, it, it goes something like, and now friends, I must go. Adieu and it's like, why would a perfect trans- translation from ancient Egyptian-like <laughs> yeah,
1: reformed whatever, Egyptian
2: being translated into English in one divine translation include a French word
1: okay, here we go. I got the verse. Uh, Jacob chapter seven, verse 27, the last chapter or the last uh, verse of the of the book. Um, And I, Jacob, saw that I must go soon down to my grave. Wherefore, I said unto my son, Enos, take these plates. And I told him the things which my brother Nephi had commanded me, and he promised obedience unto the commands. And I make an end of my writing upon these plates, which writing has been small. And to the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren may read my words. Brethren, adieu.
2: Adieu. Adieu. And, you know, just little things like that. And then, you know, you want to ask questions about the kinderhook plates or you want to understand why a prophet who can never be led astray was led astray by letters about white salamanders. And, uh, you know, just all that kind of stuff always, always bugged me. I have a pretty analytical mind. I want to understand how things work. Sure. And when I can't understand it and nobody will explain it to me, then it makes me scratch my chin.
1: Yeah. What if, what if French being in the book of Mormon just means that it's not a new Testament to the Americas, it's just a new Testament to France. (laughs) Like what if Nephi was French?
2: You know, I, I had never considered that.
1: Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it that's... We might have just barely uncovered the newest, latest version of a Nicolas Cage movie.
2: <laughs> I am Nephi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nephi's great baguette. He yeah, slain I, Laban. I've been,
2: I've been reading first Nephi with the wrong accent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe the golden plates were just like plates of really good food.
2: Yeah, that uh, could be. Like
1: escargot or something like that. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I don't have, i don't know how much time you've had. We've—we've uh, we've been at it for about ninety minutes so far, and I don't want to take up your entire evening. So,
2: I can go a few more minutes. It's totally up to you. Sure. Yeah. If there's, if, if there's some other topics that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet.
1: Yeah, it's not so much polygamy and Mormonism related, but I am curious, like, where you draw your inspiration from. And one— one thing that I remember talking about from our previous recording is that time that I was talking with you when you brought your uh, new-made uh, axe. And you were showing it off because you were on a way to a gig or something like that in Three Forks, or something like that. Um, And you were talking about how, like, you listen, like, the thing that you love, or one of the things that you love the most, is listening to someone who's passionate about whatever it is, and how that, like, really resonated with me at that time, um, and how it kind of like shaped things going forward for me. And that coming from you, like, being a musical dude and finding his his creative stride. Um, and what that means and that kind of concept is just neat to me.
2: Yeah. Well, it, it's funny that the things that you say or the things that you do that resonate or stick with other people and to you at the time, you had no idea that you were going to affect somebody that way. I mean, that comment that I threw out was just me talking, but sure. to you it's ob- it's obviously meant something. <clears throat> so it, it uh, it just uh, reaffirms in my mind how important it is to always say awesome things. <laughs> That's
1: a lot of pressure, but sweet. <laughs>
2: yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, people being passionate about what they do is the best thing in the world. It, it's where all good things come from. I, I know, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people who don't feel passion in their lives for what they do. And for them, it's just, you know, life is a trudge. And it's just a, you know, their time is marked by the the bills that they have to pay and the sure and the appointments that they have to make. But when you find somebody who's passionate about something, their attitude is so different. They're just filled with enthusiasm that's contagious to you and your passion, even if it's something that is completely different. And when you listen to them talk, you can hear that they're soul is just in into it and they're and you know whether it's auto mechanics or gardening or you know guitar playing sure or or painting it doesn't it doesn't matter if, if it's something that they enjoy and they have passion for it that's like the the essence of the human spirit what the human spirit should be and whenever i meet people and hear them talk about that kind of stuff it 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 makes me, it reinvigorates me about my passions. That's so cool. Yeah. And it is, especially when people, the thing that a person is passionate about is, is um, beyond themselves. Like I I know people who, one of the most things they're most passionate about is doing things for other people. Yeah. Honestly, honestly, my wife is that way. She'd way rather give a present than get a present. She'd way rather, you know, do something for somebody else than to be doted upon herself. Yeah. And when I hear her talk about that, it it just, you know, it just makes my heart explode and, and, and also makes me feel worthless for being such a selfish heathen
1: <laughs> <laughs> by following your passions <laughs> yes <laughs> that's interesting that's so that's so cool and and i draw inspiration from you i draw inspiration from a lot of different places and i'm curious where you draw yours from just with i mean i know obviously like being in tribute bands like that's kind of the gig is like yeah you're you're invigorated by the musicality and the lyricism of the scorpions and, mm-hmm. you know, Kansas and Bon Jovi and these other various bands that you've been a part of. So I'm curious yeah. like like what beyond the bands that you're tributing do you draw inspiration from?
2: Well, the tribute band thing I do because I love to be in front of an audience. If you I, I write tons, as you know, I write tons of original music. Yeah. The the audience for original music is about zero. When you play a gig with original music, we joke that when you, when you do a gig with original music, the audience is is five people. And all each one of them is a wife of one of the band members. (laughs) That's what you can expect to play to when you're doing original music. So I write original music for myself. It's cathartic. The tribute thing is because I love to play in front of an audience. And, and I'll tell you when, when you are standing in front of a thousand people, um, and you are pouring your soul into this song, even though it's not yours. It's it's a song that was part of the people in the crowd's youth. It was part of the soundtrack of their life, and it was part of the soundtrack of my life. Yeah. So you can really pour yourself into it, and you give it to the crowd, and they it resonates with them. And then they give it back to you. They give their approval back to you, and it creates this energy loop that is, I mean, I'm I've never used drugs, but... I imagine that that's what it must feel like Yeah, because it's, it's very euphoric to stand in front of this stage and to hear a, you know, a thousand people or 2000 people singing the chorus of the song along with you and to know that you're, you're the genesis of that. It's just, so anyway, that's, that's That's a lot
1: of, that's a lot of boobs being flashed in your direction. I would think It It it
2: is. I mean, two thousand people. <laughs> you figure half of them are women.
1: That's a thousand, so, so that's, that's two thousand that's, boobs.
2: That's two thousand boobs. I mean, hopefully it's an even number.
1: <laughs> well, and if it's not, my heart goes out to them.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. Everybody has their own challenge, and I'll be there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, um, but but yeah, it's um. My actually, I would be lying if I didn't acknowledge that 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 naked boobs have been a part of some of the shows I've played. Nice. Kathy, Kathy often gets asked how she feels about that. She oh. says, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I know that when Aaron's up on stage, it's just part of the act. It's part of the stick. Yeah. But at the end of the night, he's coming home with me and that's all that matters. That's awesome. So
1: That's great that you guys have that security in your relationship. That's super cool. Yeah.
2: yeah we've been, we've been married 30, actually, Yesterday was our 32nd anniversary.
1: Oh, well, congratulations. So, That's yeah. awesome.
2: So we've been married plenty long enough to take each other for granted now. There you go. And That's the way it works, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. we're, both, we're both too old and lazy to go anywhere else at this point. Um, <laughs> but as far as the original music, just going back to what I said at the very beginning of our conversation, that it's, it has to do with finding the state of play. Like when you're when you're pushing pieces of song around in a computer or noodling around on the guitar and you're trying a verse here and trying a lyric there and changing the melody here, it's like you're you're just kind of you're in this state of play, but but you're also trying to achieve this beautiful outcome where where everything naturally fits together as if it could have gone together no other way. Yeah. And And Like the flow
1: state, I think, is what it's called, right?
2: Yeah. And there's this this point in that progression where all of a sudden the song just reveals itself to you. And you just go, oh, my gosh, there it is. I was trying to make it this kind of a song, but it's this kind of a song. I, I understand that now. There's always that point, at least for me. And
1: that's why I write songs. That's so cool. Do you, uh, do because you, what? are you, are you one of those types of artists who um, adheres to the idea that the song has its own like personality? I mean, I know that you can like attach that, you know, adjective to the respective artwork, but do you adhere to the idea of like, no, the song was, wanted to be that song and it revealed itself. I mean, I know that you, you're using this <laughs> yeah. thing, but I'm, I'm trying to see if you're as mystic as your words are on paper, if that makes sense.
2: Um, I, I, I don't know if it's mystic or it definitely comes from somewhere. I, I, I don't, I would never take the whole credit cause I don't know where ideas come from the cosmos. I don't know how they, they get there. They come from but a white salamander. The white salamander obviously, <laughs> um, reveals itself to you and then you understand the song.
1: Could you write a song? How quick would it take you to write a song about a white salamander? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Don't do that to me.
1: Now, now I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you forget. Now I'm going to say, all right, you know, after we hit hundred episodes, we'll change the theme song. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, you know, you're joking. But at one o'clock in the morning tonight, my eyes are going to pop open. <laughs> and I'm going to have three rhymes for Salamander. There you go. And I'm not going to be able to go back to sleep.
1: Whatever you want me to pay you, I'll pay you. That's great news <laughs> to me. I am all about it. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, the, um, oh, I forgot where I was going with that now.
1: You're talking about like uh, how the song, um, like where you think ideas oh, come from and that kind of thing.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where they come from, but as far as each one having its own personality, that certainly does happen uh, after the song exists in the world and other people who aren't you or your mom start to hear it yeah <laughs> and and they they hear it differently maybe than sometimes the way you intended it and and then it becomes its own thing. Sure. And then it's it's really no longer yours. It belongs to whoever hears it, and they do with it what they want. Yeah. I have. You, you may not know this, but do you are, do you know the song I wrote called "Cowboy Up"? Yes. No, not "Cowboy Up." Cow, "Cowboy On." "Cowboy
1: On." Because I know that that was the was that the title of that album as well.
2: Yes. "Cowboy On." has taken on, uh, on a life of its own. Oh, has it? I, if, you, if you know the song, by the way, that's one of my most successful songs that's been cut by s- several different people. Nice. Um, but it has become <laughs> something I never foresaw It's become a bit of a gay anthem.
1: Oh my
2: God, no way!
1: (laughs) Okay, so here's a question. If I pulled it up, would we be able to play it without you suing me?
2: (laughs) Uh, You might get a letter that says, contact me. Uh, No, I don't care. You You can play it all you want.
1: Okay, all right. So this is a... This is, we're going to play some gay anthems on my podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Is, are you on Spotify?
2: Somebody, somebody somewhere is going, what does this have to do with polygamy?
1: Yeah. Well, like I have said before, numerous times I follow where we get, I, I follow you. And then if I ask questions, we see where the you know conversation ends up. Um, and now we're ending up on top of a horse. Maybe,
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the final line of the chorus is "I get my cowboy on," and I think that's I think that's the the seed that uh, <laughs> that caused the song to germinate in a place I never intended it to germinate.
1: Okay, all right. Is this going to be super weird for you if I play this song right now?
2: Uh, I, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: if you okay, but for real, if you don't want me to play it, I just think it would be oh, kind no. of fun. I don't have any problem with your playing at all. Okay. All right. So let me, let me pull it up really quick. I want to make sure that I'm not blasting our, our ears out really quick here. Oh, here we go. Okay. So before you get in, I have so many questions because I'm just a nerd, but so, (laughs) so what you, what instruments are being introduced right there? Cause there's obviously guitar, um, some fiddle from what I'm hearing. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So did you write all that stuff and play it yourself or did you have someone else uh, w- who knew how to play that instrument record it for you?
2: Yes. The, somebody else, I, I hired out all the stuff that I don't do. Okay. Namely the vocals. That's not my voice. If you're going to pitch songs in Nashville you got to have killer country vocals and I don't. Okay. So I hired that out. The, f- the fiddle player, was uh, tiger bell i think who's like the touring fiddle player for brooks and dunn oh sick all all these guys that are in these big touring bands they tour all summer and in the winter they're home at nashville and they need a way to make ends meet so they end up doing demo sessions so when you have a demo cut in nashville you know garth brooks fiddle player could end up on your demo that's so cool yeah so um anyway I, i don't know if that's if that's right, I would have to go back and look at the credits. But I know the guy who played fiddle on this also plays fiddle in some pretty big acts.
1: Okay, sweet. Anyway, all right. Yeah. And we'll progress. I mean, I'm probably just going to like totally like butcher the like I want, I, I want to dissect the song so much that I might just like ruin the song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll just play it and then maybe I'll have some questions later on if I don't interrupt everything like always.
0: There we go. A man should make a paycheck anyway he can that's why i wear this suit and tie but that ain't who i am it's not
1: who you are cuz you I'm might be
0: gay maybe it's 5 <laughs> o'clock i'm gone and it's work clothes off. cowboy on.
1: oh no <laughs> Pick up truck, a little long old Texas blue from Nashville Tennessee Dude, now okay so I have to stop it now that I have the gay thing it every lyric now is totally changed I'm not gonna be able to think of this song differently and there's gonna be tons of people who have never listened to this song until now <laughs> that are only ever going to be thinking about it as a gay anthem oh this is amazing
2: <laughs> uh, before you continue. The third verse does redeem it a little bit. Okay. But but by then it's already kind of irredeemable. So
1: okay. <laughs> I mean already. I mean big belt buckles and, <laughs> you know, work clothes off, cowboy on. Yep. <laughs> that's amazing.
0: <laughs> Black hat, blue jeans, wild horses—that's what I mean. <laughs> cowboy on just fits so naturally.
1: This is, a, this is a drag show walkout song.
0: When the work week's over And it's Friday night An old bar playing steel guitar Somehow just feels right
1: There you go. It's
0: all the score and the swinging doors That's right where rapping long When it's work closed on Cowboy on I'm talking big, belt buckle.
1: It's <laughs> an awesome song. I love this song.
0: from Nashville, Tennessee Black hat, blue jeans, wild horses, that's what I mean. Cowboy, all just fits so naturally. I'm just a time card punching, number crunching, working man. <laughs> But my country roots run deeper than the big old real ride. <laughs> that, that
2: okay.
1: Yeah, no, that's great.
0: Yeah. My wife works in the city. Helping make ends meet. Oh,
1: so your wife works in the city. So now I can't help but think of the similarity between closeted married Mormon men. <laughs> who, who want to have this be their anthem so bad this is like what they listen to when they're on their way to work and the windows are up right <laughs> talking about the drag show entrance song like that's what they're doing at this time <laughs> oh this is amazing
0: she's so cute in a business suit but it's just two wall streets she gives them hell to the closing bell then she tails it home gets her work clothes off and cowboy
1: on Okay, so that's where it's a little cowboy bit of redeeming belt, buck, a Okay
0: a truck, a Texas, enter, blue from Tennessee. Black hats, blue jeans Ride horses, that's what I mean Cowboy on just fits on so naturally It's black hats, blue jeans wild horses that's what I mean when I get my cowboy cowboy
1: on. that is beautiful
2: yeah so the, like I said the third verse I am trying to assert myself as a red-blooded you know American male
1: sure but, yeah
2: but uh, apparently I, the first two verses I've already outed myself <laughs> so you know <laughs>
1: oh that's beautiful and if there's anybody who's listening to this that is a closeted gay mormon man (laughs) i think it would be awesome if we went to a drag show and used to suck to walk out (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so cool so this is such a crazy thing to think about like so you were thinking you were talking about your knack for writing country songs and how they just kind of like just come to you it's almost like this curse is this the curse that you're talking about
2: (laughs) i guess it must be
1: (laughs) well it's kind of a cool curse to have i guess right
2: (laughs) i guess yeah i can i can create inside rhymes that uh out uh closeted gay men sure just like like that
1: there you go (laughs) have you ever had any other projects do something like that before or i'm not talking about turning into a gay anthem but like kind of turning into something else
2: not not that i can think of right at the top of my head
1: that's cool well awesome well hey i don't want to keep you any further um i think what we have is great and it's a perfect place to end i think um <laughs> yeah, yeah d- seriously though it it means so much for me to to have you on and to talk about your experience and everything and you're part of the reason why this is a thing and i th- can't thank you enough
2: hey absolutely it was fun